Hi, I'm Courtney Johnson. I'm a postdoctoral associate at Genelia, and I build microscopes. And I recently got finished building a microscope to track viruses in 3D. And now I'm here building more microscopes. Sorry, that was not great. <laughs> That's okay. That was fantastic. <laughs> it's like the most simplest thing that I can say, but like, I, I don't know. On this episode, Gopu and I sit down with CJ Johnson, and she shares with us her improbable journey. Welcome to the Journey of Science. You know, so yeah. you said you go by CJ, but you... I do, I, I do. So it, it's, it's kind of funny because, uh, yeah, I should have said CJ in the middle because it doesn't work because it is my initials. Like, it just kind of caught on, like, years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I decided I liked it enough. So, I, yeah, I should have said that uh, in the middle just so people aren't confused. Yeah. <laughs> just one more thing, CJ. What pronouns would you like me to refer to? Uh, she, her. Okay. Yep. To be nice. And microscope. Like wow, well, building a microscope. <laughs> this, is, this is true, right? Is it like, is it like, it's like little bricks of different parts, and you just just build it? It's like the world's most expensive Lego set, and Legos are pretty expensive already. Yeah, yeah. It's you. It's you can actually build microscopes out of Legos. I think they probably have one, right? <laughs> I mean, there's not really a reason why you couldn't, right? Like you yeah. need certain optics, but as far as mount, you could absolutely build a mount out of Legos to hold a lens. It probably wouldn't be like the most stable, <laughs> unless you have the right geometry. Hmm. There's not a huge reason why you couldn't. It wouldn't be the best, but you could do it. So so you do you actually build them or do you just have specific parts, components that you're working with to to build, to track these viruses? So yeah, no, I, so let me think about the best way to explain this is, um, so it starts with, we wanna do this thing X, and then we build an optical design that will meet the criteria that we need to do X. And then we basically order the Lego bricks and we put them together. And then we have to actually, you know, this is a hardware device. And so we have to have software to drive the hardware. And so there's actually a lot of software programming involved to control the hardware. Okay. So you, maybe we'll back up. So you have a degree in chemistry, PhD in chemistry from Duke. Yes. So how did you get into that? What the whole focus of this podcast um, is talking about your pathway into science. So what the first question we like to ask is just what got you into science as a young young little cj you know what was it that like science was science is the direction i want to go we all have our our you know story what was yours yeah my story is really unusual in this regard because i was not a i was not young um i was not i was not one of those people who grew up being like yeah, I had a microscope at home that I just really loved and I wanted to build it someday. It was never, (laughs) uh, I I didn't have a home chemistry uh, set. I didn't fall in love with science in school. I never connected with science. Science was like my least favorite subject in school. Mm -hmm. Um, So little CJ would be very, very surprised and be like, why did you do that? 
Um, the truth is none of this was supposed to happen. I was, I, I was somebody who was very lost as an undergrad. I knew for me, I was a first generation student and I, I just, I really wanted to, I wanted to be successful in life and I didn't know what that looked like. And I was, so I just took all the classes that I could and like my transcript is wild. I've got like, I've got like medical terminology, intro to business what was your degree? Is it, I, well, I didn't have one at the time. I was, I, I, it was chemistry in the end, but it took me okay. eight years to get there. Oh man, as an undergrad. I, yes, I was, okay. I started off at community college and, you mm. know, I was just taking classes because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And three years in, I was getting a little bit concerned because I was like, hey, I don't have a major. <laughs> this is, this is not, I could see myself going over the cliff of no return because I knew what would happen if I didn't figure this out. Yeah. Um, and I didn't like what that looked like. Um, I was like, this is my one chance to like do something and get out of, you know, not having to worry about, you know, paying rent every month and just kind of escaping, you know, being from that kind of lower income background where everything's really precarious. Like this is my one chance to escape and I'm wasting it. And where did you do your undergrad? So I did my under, so I started at a community college in Arizona. Oh, I and yeah, so Chandler Gilbert Community College in in it's in the Phoenix metro area, and then I uh, in my third year I moved with my family to Texas Women's University, oh. or to Denton, Texas, or not near Denton, where Texas Women's University was like the closest and most affordable hmm. university that I could transfer to, um, and so that's what brought me to TBU, and I was lost going in, and so I was like I've got to figure out something. Well, maybe I'll be maybe I'll be a pre med, because yeah. that you know even if even if I don't want to do that, it will pay if I can become a doctor. Um, and so that's a, what me. Go ahead. I was going to say, as, as, so as a first gen, um, I think I can speak as I'm a first generation college graduate. Gopo, I don't know about you. Same. So um, I, I have this conversation a lot and I kind of had a similar situation where I had no, I mean, my parents were like, you got to go to college. That's the only direction forward. But once I got there, I had no idea what to do. So I, I'm curious what in extrinsically or intrinsically was guiding you to saying, oh, that was telling you this is through this pathway that I've got right now is there's a cliff. And once I cross that cliff, there's no, like, what was, what was that guiding light that was giving you that kind of input? It was, it was kind of the same thing where my mom was, was absolutely adamant that I was going to go to college. And once I got mm -hmm. there, I didn't know what to do. Um, it was the fact that it really was the fact that I had gone through so many different subjects mm -hmm. and I just didn't fall in love with any of them. And I knew what happened if you didn't get a degree, like it was kind of that, I, I guess my mom had always connected that for me is that, you know, I would have been so much, she, you know, she, she kind of had this regret that if I could have had the opportunity to go to college and finish college and get a degree, I would have like all of these problems that have really all of these obstacles wouldn't have existed because I, I could have gotten a job and had security. Mm -hmm. and, and so I knew that if I didn't get that degree, I wouldn't have that security and I would face the same. And I wanted to break the cycle. Like mm -hmm. I wanted to move upward and break the cycle. And I knew that because I'd already wait, like wasted three years in terms of not finding anything. Like I was running out of options and I had to do something to say, okay, maybe this isn't the greatest thing that's ever going to happen to me, but at least I will have security. Mm, 
Um, and that led me kicking and screaming into taking introduction to chemistry. Yeah. Um, mm. which was not a class that I would ever have taken voluntarily. Um, because I was I was terrified. I tried to um I never took chemistry in high school. I thought it sounded really hard. I thought it sounded really I thought I would hate it. I, I did not, it was never a class I would have taken voluntarily. Why did and you so, take it? Because it, your... it was because I was trying to become a pre-med and okay. I knew I would need it if I was gonna go to med school. I see. Um and I had no I, I I didn't have any chemistry background, so I didn't go straight to general chemistry. And I didn't have really any math background either. So um, I went to high school out in Arizona. And so the only class I had, I had algebra one and geometry for math. Mm-hmm. And for science, I took biology and I took geology. That was it. So no chemistry, no physics. Yeah. Um, and I just, the thing for me was I was afraid of challenge, which is going to sound very strange to anybody who knows me. I basically was trying to avoid taking hard classes and having to work super hard. And I never, and that's just who I was at the time. I was a very different person in high school. Like I just didn't put in the effort. I I had a very fixed mindset to where if I had to try, that meant that I was bad at something and Mm -hmm. that it was just hard. And that was for smart people. And, and, and so I didn't, I never had that where you have to put something in to get something out. And it's not a, it's not a value judgment of you as a person. If you have to work hard to do something, that's the way it's supposed to be. So this was a really new experience for me. Um, and so I so, took intro. So at that point you were like, you said you'd gone three years. How far along in your undergrad was this intro chemistry? Three years or four years? Four. Four years. Four. So you're, you're an adult, right? Young, yeah. early twenties, probably. Yeah. Um, I'm assuming you took that class and it went pretty well, <laughs> given the trajectory that you went on, right? Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I had at, at first I didn't it didn't quite click with me, um, and I was like, "What do you mean you give electrons energy and they get excited? Do you tickle them?" And I remember, you know, being in the lab, I didn't know the difference between a flask and a beaker, mm-hmm. and I was. I was just really bad at it. Like I was like, a, I, I was like, wow, I'm a lab club. I can't do anything right. Everybody else knows what they're doing. I'm the last one here struggling to get this done. Um, yeah. Those chemistry labs, they're, they're not even <laughs> set up for you to succeed. Really. It feels like half the time. <laughs> they're just, and it's of... like, it, it, and it's like, but at the end of it, what I fell in love with was the problem solving. Mm-hmm. Because in my other classes, I was just memorizing and spitting things back. And it was just really not engaging. This was something that I actually, I I felt rewarded when I succeeded. And I really enjoyed the problem solving. And then I just had this tremendous sense of regret because I, I, I just imagined what could have been. If I had discovered this at the beginning, oh yeah, yeah, because I could never major in chemistry because that requires calculus. I can't do basic math. I don't know that a negative times a negative is a positive at this point. Mm-hmm. I'm teaching myself math every single week just to keep up with this class, and 
how am I like I'm on financial aid my parents aren't paying for me to go to college and by parents I mean one no I don't have family support for me to like pay my tuition um how am I going to pay for four more years yeah like so 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 this was something that seemed very impossible at the time and so I I just had this this sense of regret but I thought okay I'm going to take general chemistry next semester because I want to learn more about this, which was a new thing. Every other class, you know, I was like, okay, I'm done with, uh, I took sociology. It was a general, it wasn't super engaging. I can close the book on it. And if I never see that again, I will be okay with it. Mm-hmm. But with chemistry, I wanted to learn more. Yeah. And so I took this class, even though getting a major, it's definitely impossible. And in January, start of the second semester, I reached a point um, that really was the turning point for me. And, and it's interesting because I, I feel like everyone, I, I hear a lot. I was actually listening to a podcast on this the other night about turning points and how you often don't realize them when they're happening. It's only years down the line mm-hmm. that, you, but like for me, no, I knew this was it. When it was happening to me, I knew this was it. And, you know, 10 years down the line, it seems really silly, but it was incredibly profound to me at the time um, that it was happening was we'd reached a point in the class where we're using the quadratic equation. And so I'm not as enthused about telling the story 10 years down the line, but this was a big deal for me at the time because I never made it to the math class where you learn this type of thing. And so everybody else who had, you know, math in high school was like, yeah, this is not a big deal. It might, it might, I might be struggling to remember this. This might be hard or whatever, but I'll figure it out. For me, this was a huge point of anxiety because I'd never seen this. And so when I looked at it, it was like how to take the negative X, Y, Z power to the, to the root of infinity is what it might as well have looked like to me. Mm-hmm. And it just, it really triggered this anxiety in me because I had, I, I'd reached a point where, okay, I've been keeping up on the side, studying every week to try and get through the math, but th- that's not, that's not enough here because I don't even know where to start to even get this close. And I just, I didn't want this to be the end for me. And I went to my professor's office hours and I was just really like, clenched with math anxiety here and I I told him about where I was struggling and he sat with me for like a couple of hours going through the basic math to even get to where we were um, on that and by the end I told him like I was starting to get it at the very end and there was this absolute switch that clicked in me and it just projected And it said, okay, if I can get this math that I've been avoiding and terrified of for literally years, I can go on. I can pass calculus. I can major in chemistry. I can get my PhD. And then I can teach others like me who don't realize Mm -hmm. that they can do these types of things. And I had this incredible sense of resolve because because I saw this projection mm-hmm. and in that moment I realized I will find a way I don't care what it takes 
if I have to headbutt my way through a brick wall, mm-hmm. I will find a way. Yeah, yeah. And or, I just, mo- or movie tie your way through it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm training so hard. That sounds, I mean, that sounds like that is such a defining, um, not just a career moment, but just a person person moment where it's, it's, it's sorry to interrupt it just seems very even spiritual my question is how old were you when all this was happening i would have been 23 it was mm. yeah yeah it was january i celebrate this every year <laughs> i celebrate this day every year it's almost like yeah it is almost like a rebirth for me yeah um it, it's in it's january of 2012 was when this happened so literally the 10th anniversary of this day, I texted my professor and say, I don't know if you've been keeping track. <laughs> I mean, that's, but I I, have. that's amazing, CJ. Um, Cause I, I, I don't, you know, just my limited interaction with you, I can see that that has radically changed your outlook on life. I mean, you went from that to now PhD in chemistry to now you're building microscopes, you know, you're, 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 you're looking at your life as like, I mean, I don't want to mean to be telling you <laughs> what you're doing, but what I'm seeing is that you look at, you look for challenges now, yeah. knowing that I want to figure out what I cannot conquer, right? Yeah. Come at me kind of a yeah. mentality. That's great. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> such, that's- that is like the definition of, so sociologists, right? They call it this grit factor. And I think that's such a, for scientists, that is like the hallmark of successful science is just whatever it is, I'm going to break through that wall. I'm going to headbutt my way through that wall. So that's amazing. Is that what motivates you to build microscopes? (laughs) Is is getting through the challenge? You know, I think at some level it must be because it is, there were a lot of walls that I had to headbutt through (laughs) while I was a grad student. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's very fascinating because the way that you've described your position now at Genelia is you look at the problem and then it's, how do I solve this problem versus how do I answer this question? Right. And those, I think fundamentally, those are two different mental pathways, right? I I think they are both very important, but they're fundamental. You have to have different ways to think about the world in order to say how do i solve this problem versus what is the right problem to solve and you kind of have to have a mixture of both of those in science mm-hmm. to move things forward right and and some people are really bad at one and some people are really bad at the other and some people are just really talented at both and i think those are the the people that really stand out in terms of the upper echelon of of successful science I mean, I think that's one of the things that's so exciting about being at Genelia is, you know, I can get a much better uh, flavor for what is the question that biologists are, and neuroscientists are really interested mm-hmm. in solving if only they had the right tools to solve them. I think that's what's really unique is it's the best place where you can, you know, have the opportunity to help scientists answer really high impact problem questions uh, by solving their problems with new tools. Yeah, I mean, I, I think especially um, with new advancements in knowledge, it it some questions don't even become available until we have the right tools and technology to start asking them, right? I mean, I think 
every 10 years, you can kind of go back and reevaluate what are the monumental leap forwards in just the questions that are being asked. And it is directly tied to the advancements in technology. One perspective of, or one avenue of technology becomes available to everybody. So it's like, let's say microscopy, right? This is a huge advancement in the last 20 years. It's just exponentially gotten better. I mean, what the questions we were trying to ask from a neuroscientist perspective now, 10 years ago, people weren't even thinking about. And it's only because we have these imaging approaches that we can start thinking about these questions now. And so it's, it's really... It's really fascinating. I think that was the thing that was kind of really interesting uh, for me was when we built this uh, this tracking and imaging or trim microscope and we started using it every day to watch these viruses. I mean, we would take thousands and thousands of trajectories. And I think what was really surprising was how many more questions we ended up with than answers because we would see the virus do something and we'd be like, well, what is that? Or we have, it, it was basically a question machine that we had built. Thank you. So my, my, <laughs> Thank you for doing that. <laughs> and my question is why do this in an academic lab than in a big industry, for example, Leica or Nikon or, you know, people where you have all the big resources, why in an academic lab? Um, at Duke or Janelia? Sorry? Are, are you talking about why Janelia versus an industry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so so um, HHMI is a nonprofit. It's, so it's, 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 not, it's not academia, but it's also not industry. Mm. It's, it's very well resourced. Um, it's basically there are, I don't want to be like there are no limits on resources, but it's basically what, what could you do if you could do anything and we took all the obstacles away? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think why not industry? I think one of the nice things is, you know, you don't have to be concerned about profits or oh. shareholders. You can be concerned only with the science. And the nice thing about Janelia is you don't have a lot of those restrictions on budgeting the way you do in an academic lab where every single penny has to count because that's, you know, all you have. Um, there's a lot of freedom to do really big idea uh, projects here at Genelia. So that was, that was one of the reasons I was very excited to come here, actually. So what is the environment? I'm not actually familiar with the environment at Genelia. Um, if you are a PI, are you there for a long period or is this like a temporary um you know, like you're here for five years or something and then they bring you in you get your thing going and then you then you kind of move to another thing or are you there in yeah. your career i mean do you yeah like, so it's you... um so there are kind of two classes of pis there's like group leaders and senior group leaders mm -hmm. and so i think if i'm getting this correct the group leaders are on five-year appointments that are renewable to 10 years and the senior group leaders are for seven years pot renewable for an extra seven. So you could be there like 14 years and then you have to move on. Mm -hmm. um, oh, that's interesting. I mean, I guess that's a good way to keep things fresh, right? Because I would assume in 14 years, whatever, if you're as an institute or focused on cutting edge, right? In 14 years, right? You want basically new blood to come in and redefine, you're defining what's cutting edge, right? Mm -hmm. So. Oh, well, it also kind of coincides. Uh, Janelia has these kind of focus areas that are on kind of 15 year terms. And so when they started in 2006, I think there was like a uh, 
neuroscience focused one. And then now they just started a new 15 year one last year for it's called 40 cellular physiology. Hmm. And so they're bringing in a bunch of new group leaders to drive this forward, this initiative forward. Um, but kind of the idea is small teams, big science. So all of these groups, so you basically have unlimited resources, but you can only have a team of like six people max, hmm. but but the, the group leaders can be much more heavily involved because they don't have to write grants or, or teach classes. So the PIs are, li- there are some PIs who literally are in the lab running experiments. Uh, many PIs are very actively involved and there's a lot of collaboration between all of the smaller groups, especially those that are kind of in these common or complementary uh, areas. So we, you know, my group is focused on building microscopes and we interface with a lot of these uh, 40 cellular physiology labs. So how did you end up, you went from Duke to Geneva. How'd you end up with that move? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to, so, so one thing I knew when I, when I was leaving Duke was I loved uh, building microscopes and I wanted to, to build more microscopes. Hmm. And um, I was, what do you, I wasn't wait, wait, quite... So you were, you were a chemist. Exactly. PhD at Duke. Question building microscopes. Yes, my PhD says chemistry it is a total lie. <laughs> <laughs> I, okay. I sometimes feel like I snuck my way. So like Duke has like a number three rated biomedical engineering program. And I feel like I kind of infiltrated my way into that program because they definitely yes. would not have let me in uh, with my background. But like I spent a lot, of, there's a big um, interdisciplinary photonics uh, consortium mm-hmm. at Duke. And I spent a lot of time engaging with that program that was kind of fronted by biomedical engineering. And so I kind of, I kind of feel like it would be more accurate if that's what my PhD said, but my PhD does say chemistry. My lab was brand new in the chemistry department. Hmm. And actually my PI at Duke was going to um, do actual chemistry. So he brought in another grad student along with me who was doing honest to God chemistry, uh, synthesizing quantum dots. And that project just didn't work out very well. And so she moved into doing microscopes as well. <laughs> and so, yeah, we're in a chemistry department. We're not really doing chemistry. And so uh, I, I finished up my PhD in definitely not chemistry. And I wanted to keep building microscopes. And I just, I didn't quite know where I wanted to go exactly. And my PI was like, what about Hari? I was like, who? And he goes, Hari, like he loves your work. He was here. So, so I was, it, it's kind of funny. So Hari was at the NIH mm-hmm. and I was at, um, at Duke. And then Hari came to give a talk at Duke and I went to DC for a conference and we missed each other completely. And so he was like, he loves your work. He would be a great mentor for you. You should go talk to him. And I was like, I don't even know who this dude is. Why? <laughs> so but I was like, okay, I'm going to talk to him. And I, um, so I sent him an email. He's like, yes, I know your work and I like it. And I was like, that's always a good response to get back yeah, to your yeah. emails when you're looking <laughs> for a postdoc. And so he goes, but I can't commit to taking a postdoc in the next six months, but let's talk. So I, I Zoom with him and he goes, the reason I can't commit to taking a postdoc is because I'm thinking about moving to Genelia. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's crazy because I looked for a lab at Genelia and I didn't find one. <laughs> Mm. So, because uh, I, I knew about it from a talk that another um, uh, another 
postdoc who was at Genelia, who ended up at UNC, um, he had given a talk at Duke, and I, it just sounded like the coolest place to do microscopies. So I actually looked there for a job and didn't find one at the very beginning of my search. And, and here, Hari is saying, hey, I'm thinking about moving to Jillian. I was like, there is no way on earth that I get this lucky. None. Mm -hmm. um, and it, but we had a great talk, and it went from, well, I can't commit, to let's make this happen. Um, and then he eventually did decide to move to Janelia. I would have followed him even to the NIH, but mm -hmm. here I am. And it's just, I, I, I really had high expectations for what Janelia was. And it's just like blown them out of the water. It really is the greatest place to do science. Oh, that's fun. That's so fun. So how long have you been there? You've been there. I've, <laughs> I've been here longer than Ari, actually. I've, I've been here uh, six, I've been here since June. Oh, okay. That so the lab, the lab yeah. opened in August here, and I've been they they actually let me come a little bit early, so I've been here since June. Hmm. Okay. So, do you want to eventually establish your own lab? Yes. And to venture into building new types of microscopes. Yes. Do you have a vision for that yet? I mean, it's a tricky question, but. Yeah, it's um, you know, I so so that was one of the things, right? When I made this decision, um, you know, at that turning point, I knew I wanted to be a professor, and mm -hmm. so originally I thought that was going to be more of a teaching focused uh, kind of career. But the problem is, I fell in love with research, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so I really want, I definitely want a um, a type of position where I can do both those things, where I can uh, teach and mentor and also do awesome science. Uh, or engineering even, just building new microscopes. And so I think one of the things is I'm really open. I, I've remained flexible to kind of what that looks like. Mm -hmm. So I definitely envision building microscopes. And I think one of the things that I'm really kind of interested in trying to resolve here at Genelia is figuring out what are the types of microscopes that my lab can build? Like what is needed yeah. uh, for for biology? I see. So when you say of building microscope, it's like confocal microscope. I'm sorry, I just don't know anything about it. So it's, is it like a confocal microscopy fluid? I mean, what what kind of microscopes can a person build? Yeah, so you you absolutely can build a confocal microscope, um, and then you can take, um, you know, that that's kind of actually very similar to my first project in grad school. Was we had this commercial confocal microscope from nine? It was an LSM four ten from 1995. Uh, running on a Windows 98 PC uh, that gives me blue screen errors that I forgot existed. And we took that uh, confocal and we, you know, shot a femtosecond laser into it to turn it into two photon. And then I built an optical assembly outside of it to basically make an entirely different type of new form of 3D imaging. And I called that 3D faster because that was basically what I did was I made it do 3D faster. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's actually, it, it sounds really basic uh, since it really is just kind of a modification of a commercial instrument. Um, it, it can be like that or um, light sheet is a big thing in microscopy and Hari is basically a giant in light sheet. Um, and so there are all kinds of things that you can do with that mm -hmm. uh, to make really good gentle imaging that you can image something for a long time. So there are all, it depends on what problem you're trying to solve. If you want to uh, build something that can image something really long or with 
super fast speed or super high resolution. It just depends what you're trying to do. I, th I think what we're seeing right now is kind of a lot of tailoring of microscopes to specific problems mm -hmm. because, you know, you can have one microscope that maybe it's really phototoxic or you can't image it long enough or fast enough, or you can't see the right field of view. Um, and so I think there, that's kind of what we're seeing is we're kind of seeing microscopes to kind of fill different niches. So can you just for myself, I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Can you just generally explain the difference between light sheet, confocal, and two photon? Yeah. Oh, yeah. My bad. <laughs> I'm just like dropping all these words. Um, so confocal microscope is, I, I think it, it, it's, it's very common in a lot of biology labs. It's something that you can buy in a box. Mm -hmm. And what's great about these microscopes is that they have a property called optical sectioning which is where they basically get rid of a uh, light that is out of focus. And so that's kind of in contrast to these, they're called wide field microscopes. that are the more simple ones uh, that are also often in biology labs, uh, but they have a lot more blurring from out of focus light. And so confocal microscopes are much better for 3D imaging than a wide field microscope is. Now, the problem with a confocal microscope is it's a fluorescence microscope and you are exciting uh, and sending light through the sample to excite the label. And you're you're still exciting everything. You're just, mm -hmm. you're removing it on the emission side. I see. And so the difference between that and a two-photon microscope is a two-photon microscope uh, uses a special type of laser and really high power. Um, and the power is condensed in a way that it will only excite uh, your sample at the focus and nowhere else. And so this is better for a variety of reasons. Um, it's basically, it can actually help you kind of image longer in the sense that you're not bleaching your sample. So your sample stays brighter for longer since you're not exciting the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then light sheet is kind of dramatically different in that the beam is actually structured in a way that you're not sending light through the whole sample. Um, and there are a variety of ways to make a light sheet but it's literally like, it sounds like it's a sheet of light. Um, and what's nice about that is the way the power is, it's much more gentle. And so it's less it's less phototoxic to the sample. So you can image for much longer mm -hmm. than either confocal or two photon. And so there's been a lot of, and it's also really fast. So there's been a lot of work in recent years, uh, finding different ways of using light sheets and different uh, geometries. It's a really big uh, field in my subfield of microscopy right now. There yeah, here, yeah, light sheet. A lot of people are, especially at these local, these recent meetings I've been to. It seems to be the hot microscopy word. I don't know if that's just it's becoming more commercially available, uh, or more commercially accessible to 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 people. Mm -hmm. So what? So what are some of the innovative uses for, um, um some of these more advanced imaging technological advancements. So like moving from a confocal to two photon to light sheet, what are some of the things we are now able to do or do better that, that it's, it's been allowed us to, as, as we kind of talked about a minute ago, you know, what questions can we start asking now that we weren't able to do before this technology existed? Yeah, I think, I think the really exciting you know, if you want to kind of think about how things have developed is you, you, you move from these kind of static 2D and maybe even 
to 2D images to 3D images. Mm -hmm. And now we have these dynamic 4D mm -hmm. data sets over time where you can actually watch things change and grow and develop. So I think that's what's really exciting is the longer you can see something and the more continuously that you can see something, uh, the more data you have and the more you can learn about specific problems that are evolving over time. Mm -hmm. So does building a microscope also involve making the software uh, to analyze those data sets, right? Yes, and this is a big problem uh, in, in some respects. So you have to make the software to control the hardware. You also have to make the software to analyze the data. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then the more, the more data you get, uh, the more the more difficult it becomes uh, because you know you can get into terabytes of data. Um, some people are getting into petabytes of data, Ooh. like just massive amounts of data, and how do you treat it? So there's kind of been this evolving subfield computationally uh, for how to <laughs> analyze uh, the data that you get from microscopes. In some ways, that's actually the bigger issue. Mm -hmm. um, there's been kind of a push because, you know, what will happen is, you know, these labs will develop these instruments, but if they don't get commercialized, they kind of stay in the lab, even if they have this um, advantage and ability that nobody else has. And so some places, some universities have tried to make kind of these core facilities mm -hmm. that basically have copies of these instruments to make them more accessible to other users. But then you, you have a user that comes in, put, you know, pushes a button, takes the data, and they walk out with hard drives, plural. And it's like, how do you kind of bridge that gap to actually get a meaningful knowledge out of your images? So that's an entirely, there's actually a whole subfield around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seems like a truly collaborative field, like different heads coming together. Also, another question that I have is, like, like a person for me who's like listening to all this brand new, and if that person wants to join, let's say your lab, what do you expect them to know? Like, what should their background be? What would make them more understanding about this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, <laughs> oh man. So let me put it to you this way. So when I joined my lab at Duke, I was a chemist um, and I had no knowledge of optics and no knowledge of microscopy and I did not know how to code. And so the first thing um, I did was I was having to build a part of this microscope. And the first thing you have to do is you have a laser and you basically have to steer the beam around the table. And so I was, uh, I had a postdoc who, and the PI who were kind of teaching me together how to do these things. And I was like, it would be very helpful if I could just read the book on this. Where can I find the book on how to do this? And they're like, there is no book. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean there's no book? There is They're like, book. there's yeah. no book. I was like, if you go to Ikea and you want to build a cabinet, the, the words aren't in English, but there's a book. Like, <laughs> what do you mean there's no book? And I even I asked another professor who built microscopes because I, I wasn't believing what I was hearing. I was like, what do you mean there's no book? There's no book on how to build a microscope. Yeah. So it's one of those things that really I had to learn by doing. Um, but I would say I that... Are you going to write a book now how to build a microscope? <laughs> it's too much work, right? <laughs> yeah, there sure is a niche for it though, isn't there? Like, <laughs> but it is, um, yeah, so so I would say um, having some basic knowledge of optics is helpful. 
um, having some basic skills with coding, be that MATLAB, Python, that is also, that, that's very helpful. Um, what else? Um, so ultimately I ended up learning multiple languages. Um, so I had no coding experience whatsoever. By the was time I was, it was, it was, I was in, um, so luckily I took my uh, eventual PIs class, my very first semester of uh, grad school, and it was very much MATLAB focused. And so that was my first experience decoding and I hated it because I would just try and do anything and I would get this angry red text. And I, I just, I did not understand the logic of it. Mm -hmm. And it took me about a year and a half before I felt like I kind of knew what I was doing. And then I fell in love with it because I, I figured out what it could do for me. Um, but it did not come easily. It was very much a, a new skill to learn. So and what then, was it that pushed, I mean, you had to, as with the chemistry example, you know, taking chemistry for the first time, you had to, for yourself to say, this is what I want to do. Like, I'm going to push through this. I'm going to beat my head on this wall until I break through it. What, what, for, so for that, what was it that made you go from joining a chemistry PhD program to saying, this is the lab I want. It's in imaging. It's in building microscopes. I have, it's very fascinating, but it's a skill set that I'm, I'm going to have a sharp learning curve to build. Like, what was it that pushed that? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I will say the universe kept trying to put me and my PI together. Everybody okay. knew this was right. And the reason why was because even though I didn't have a background in optics and I didn't have a background in coding, I was very good with computers and building computers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was, I was super into technology. So like I was into, I was into image quality and analyzing images in the sense that I um, was super, like I calibrate my TV. So, so to find like the optimum, there's actually like a standard that you can compare your TV against to as far as brightness, contrast, colors. Um, and whenever I got, you know, a new TV, I would look online for the, so you could actually buy a spectrometer. It's like, I couldn't afford one. It's like $200 at the time. So I couldn't afford one at the time. And so I would look online to see what values other people had found. And I would find like test patterns. And I feel like this is a thing that most people don't do. I have and never heard of this in my life. <laughs> you can Google it. It's a real thing. I mean, I believe it because you go to like Best Buy and you look at every TV and they all look different. They're, they're all different sizes, but like the quality, the color is, and you can put it on like whatever game mode or movie mode. So I totally yeah. believe but I've yeah, never thought I've never thought twice about it. So that's actually the problem is when you get them at Best Buy, they all look different because they're not calibrated, and the mm -hmm. lights in the store are really intense. And so it's actually, yeah, it's 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 kind of optimized to make you want to bring it home, which is not where you know you don't have bright lights in your house like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, yeah. So. Oh, that's fascinating. So it's, um, are, are you familiar with like the audio files, where like yes. these people that buy like. $30,000 speakers or no scratch that $200,000 speakers because it's like the optimal you know quality let's let's get you know title subscriptions because Spotify the quality of those digital it's garbage you know it that's reminds me, me, of that's that. me I refuse to listen to music that's compressed yeah 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 <laughs> 
I didn't quite have that budget, but yes, yeah. I'm an audiophile as well. So just kind of like that discernment and appreciation of the details. Mm-hmm. Um, I think really, uh, it was a really good fit to say, okay, I'm really technically detailed. I just, I knew I didn't want to do chemistry in the traditional sense mm-hmm of, you know, synthesizing things. I always saw myself as an analytical chemist and I tried to join some analytical labs and it just was not working out. Mm -hmm. And there was this new PI, I really liked him. I knew that kind of, even though I didn't know anything about microscopes, the fact that I had all these really technical kind of rare skills, everybody else saw that. And that's why they were trying to get me into this lab. The only reason I was stubborn about it really was because I had received some advice that I should not join a new lab. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what I, that's what I tell students all the time, especially for PhD. It's, it's your, it's a personality match and your success is largely increased. If you just work well with the PI, if you have a personality conflict, regardless of your interest and their expertise, like it, that's one of the hallmarks for success as a graduate student is just your relationship with your PI right I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing I mean it's a reality but then you know what do you mean Gopu no I mean for example there could be some students who are just so fantastic and it would be sad that they don't get the resources just because they don't get along with their PI right Oh yeah, well, yeah, but I I think it's just I've known people that will that are good. So the they're good students, right? Let's just take that bottom line. They're good students. They make good grades. They work well in the lab. Um, but there's just interpersonal conflicts between mm. their PI, and it may not be them. It may be the PI. Right. That's what I'm saying, right? And that you put them in a different environment, and they thrive, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's really what it is. And I'm and I try to encourage students to take that same approach that, and that's probably the advice you were being given CJ is like, Hey, you, you guys work well together. Like it doesn't matter. These little details early on in your career, this early on, you can learn all this stuff. Right. And if you get along with your graduate mentor, there's a lot you can learn. So. Yeah. I think it's, I think fit is underrated. I think there's a difference between PIs who have toxic personalities and just Mm -hmm. different, and those who have different working styles and culture styles. And I don't think that, I I think it's normal whenever you have a team environment, the different types of people are going to, you know, if you have two PIs that are not toxic, they just have different styles. You know, some people want a more hands-off experience. Some people want a more hands-on experience. Some people want more structure. Some people want less structure. And I think that's just, there's no way around that. There's not a one size fits all. And so it was a really good fit. And I decided that that, you know, really, really liking this individual and the the culture that they were going to create and Mm -hmm. the idea that I could build something to see something that had never been seen before. Like all of that was okay yeah this is going to be hard but this person is willing to put up with me not coming in uh knowing all this and I mean he was never going to get it he's in a chemistry department he's never going to get a grad student who's a microscopist from the start that was the reality of it yeah so uh so I as long as I was willing to come in there and give it everything I got 
I mean, that, that was, that was perfect for frankly, both of us. I have a, I have two, three questions apart from this. It's like, how many microscopes have you been, have you built so far <laughs> first? And what's the first microscope you built second? And what's the proudest microscope you, yeah. I mean, you know, what's the one that you're so proud of that? man? I oh, built? wow. That, that's, I love this question so much. What's your favorite so... child, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> So, so um, it's interesting. So, so technically I've built in the past present or pre the past tense, two microscopes, Okay. Uh, but it's kind of a little bit more complicated than that because the one microscope became part of the second microscope. Mm -hmm. So in theory, <laughs> I've built one microscope in two stages mm -hmm. um, and I'm building. So I'm currently working on building. I will be building at least four uh, in the future of Genelia so far. Um, turns out we're working on building microscopes for other labs too. So there's lots of building in my future. Um, so when I started at Duke, I built, so, so basically from the beginning, the idea was, okay, you're going to build this microscope that can track the virus and image the cell around it. Hmm. So the first, so he had a, a postdoc who was an optical engineer um, coming in to build the tracking part of it. And so my job was to focus on the imaging part of it. And so one of the kind of things that is not great about being a microscopist in a chemistry department starting a new lab is that progress is very slow and everyone around you is getting papers. Oh, multiple. yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially in and chemistry. <laughs> Especially in yeah. chemistry. Yeah. So everybody is sitting there with like three papers in their third year and I'm sitting here with nothing not even close to having anything. Mm -hmm. And so just feeling like an utter failure about like, what's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. And, you know, my advisor is, is trying to tell me that that's how it is in microscopy. I'm just not believing him. But so I was, so there was, um, they, they'd come out with the first tracking paper and every single person in the lab, even the chemist, the actual chemist was on this paper, except me. And I'm sitting here with no papers and everybody else in the lab has at least one paper. And I was like, okay, that's fine. I'm building this microscope though. So I'm going to have my own paper. Right. And so I, I, I tell him, I tell my PI, well, Hey, do you, I, I'm going to get this paper out of this. Right. He's like, I don't think there's a story here actually. And I got really angry, but hmm. I was very angry. Cause I was like, I need to have at least one paper, like from my microscope. Are you kidding me? And, and like in that moment, I like was kind of laying out to him why I think there in fact is a story and why I think this microscope that I've built is unique. And I had like this theory about how this microscope could be used in a way that's really unique to kind of make a unique scan pattern and lay it. I laid out basically this hypothesis and I kind of convinced him that it was worth going for. And I ended up proving like the idea and developing the theory behind the scan pattern. And I, I did end up getting a paper out of it. Hmm. And then after that, I basically had to integrate uh, this microscope with the tracking microscope. And that was how I made trim. But the problem with that is that right about when that, so like right after that uh, first imaging paper came out was when COVID happened. So. Uh, I couldn't go in the lab for like 
months or yeah, it was like a couple months for the lockdown. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I, I'd been putting off. So I, I, at that point, I knew how to code for analysis using MATLAB. What I did not know was how to code to program the hardware, which we did using LabVIEW. And so I kept putting this off because I felt like I was so far behind that I couldn't, you know, if I took the time to learn this, I would get more behind. But this was the lockdown was like the perfect opportunity to fill this hole. And so I took this opportunity to basically program an autopilot for the whole microscope. So that was something that because my PI was like, you're going to have to stay here all night, you know, doing experiments. I was like, no. No, I'm not. That's a horrible use of my time. So I uh, basically, I was like, I'm going to program an autopilot. I just didn't know how to do it at the time. And so I finally, I finally took the opportunity to program an autopilot and it turned out to be huge. So, so I'm really proud that I was able to build a completely autonomous microscope um, from end to end. So the operation automated, analysis automated, visualization automated, you push one button and then you end up with the visualized data. So I'm like really proud of that fact. That's amazing. That's so amazing. Congratulations on that, Rayleigh, though. Something just sounds magical to me. <laughs> it, it is. It's really cool. It's like, like, it's just so much fun watching it when it operates because the thing is running itself. And I mean, even before I did that, the tracking is a real time, it's based on a real time feedback loop, which means that part of it's automated. And I always kind of analogized um, because you can see like the position um, of the virus. And I always felt like we were kind of like riding the bull, like the system was Mm -hmm. kind of trying to ride this bucking bull, which was the virus as it moves and kind of staying on it. Um, And so it's just, it it really is magical and exciting to watch. So. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Well, CJ, this was an amazing, I thought this was fantastic. I mean, I'm so excited to see where you're going to be going. Um, I will certainly be keeping track of, you know, what you're putting out, the microscopes, the technology that um, you will eventually be making, right? With this new one or with the next four that you're building. So thank you for taking the time today. Um, to sit down and talk to us. Thank you for having me.